This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition, with another episode of our podcast. Visit traditiononline.org. Sign up for our newsletters. Give us a like on Facebook or subscribe to our YouTube channel to keep updated with all of the offerings in the Journal of Orthodox Jewish Thought. Are you getting our quarterly print journal delivered to your home? Maybe now's the time to subscribe or to renew your subscription or to gift a subscription for the new year to a college student in your life who should be reading what we publish in Tradition, Special Student Rate Supply. With Rosh Hashanah around the corner and the end of the Shemitah year upon us, I sat down to chat with my friend Shlomo Brody about his recent essay, The Curious Case of Prusbul's Disappearance and Resurgence. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody was recently appointed the executive director of the Halachic Organ Donor Society. Visit hods.org to learn about their important work. His tradition essay offers a fascinating tour of an episode in the history of halacha, how the rabbinically enacted Prusbal document, which helps circumvent the loan forgiveness imposed every seven years at the end of the Shemitah cycle, came about and then fell out of fashion and has somehow miraculously resurged and reappeared taking on new force and meaning in recent Jewish history. This test case raises interesting questions about how and if halacha adapts and evolves. The full essay is open access on traditiononline.org, but here now is our conversation. Welcome to the Tradition Podcast, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody. Your recent tradition article, The Curious Case of Prusbul's Disappearance and Resurgence, was perfectly timed to appear in our summer issue, as we all now, our listeners, our readers, and worldwide jury, in the next couple of weeks in advance of Rosh Hashanah, are preparing ourselves for the arrangement of the Prusbul document. So maybe for that one listener out there who doesn't remember what he or she did seven years ago, uh, remind us just quickly, what is Prusbal and how does it work? Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me, Rabbi Sachs. Uh, Prusbal is one of the most famous rabbinic uh, decrees. It was initiated by Hillel Hazaken many centuries ago that would allow Jews to continue to collect loans, even though the Bible, the Torah, mandates at the end of the Shemitah year, all loans are supposed to be forgiven. Okay, so there is nevertheless something curious, as you as you state in the title of your essay, about the history of Prusbal. Uh, signers of the Prusbal document this year and seven years ago and 14 years ago, uh, I might be showing my age, um, 21 years ago, 28 years ago, um, maybe unaware that this act that we're engaging in uh, once every seven years um, is not as it always necessarily was, that there's been a curious uh, trail of history of how this uh, document came about, how it went away, how it disappeared, and how it in the last, uh, you know, much more recently has had a bit of a resurgence. Now, this is the topic of your essay. The essay is fascinating, but it does lead the reader through some, you know, technical, learned material. Uh, it presents very clearly and cogently, but it presents the Talmudic passages and the arguments of the Rishonim and some of the Achronim to explain, you know, what's been going on historically with uh, with Prusbal. So walk us through, what is this, what is this really interesting historical backstory to the Prusbal? 
Yeah, I mean, Prisbo is like I was saying before, and probably the most famous rabbinic document or rabbinic decree. And on the basis of Hillel's action, Jews have con continued to collect loans over many centuries. Mm -hmm. So you think, given the fame of the document and its importance, that Jews have been signing a Prisbo all these centuries as well. Now, it turns out, despite the fact that the actual enactment got so much attention over the centuries, in practice, Jews weren't signing the actual Prisbo document for many centuries. It's not clear how long this goes back, but we're clearly talking 6th, 7th century, maybe even earlier. And so what I try to document in the article is, A, the phenomenon that Jews continue to collect loans, but weren't signing this document. Against, against, the, their, against the halakha. Against what seems to be the halakha. In fact, the Gemara seems to make very clear that there was an early attempt to find a different solution to Prusbol by an early Amor named Shmuel. And yet that was rejected, seems to be, according to the Gemara. But nonetheless, um, seemingly against halakha, and many poskim throughout the generations are saying this is against halakha. Jews are collecting loans, but they're not actually signing the Prusbol document. And it's, it's wild. It's remarkable. Why not? I mean, after all, it's a fairly simple thing to do. And it's certainly in the interest of the lender to sign this simple document. So why wouldn't someone be signing this document? Why wouldn't Jews throughout the centuries be signing it, especially when we're dealing with a very significant biblical mitzvah? And uh, there are many theories that have been offered over the centuries. Right? People have noticed this, but none of them are particularly satisfying. And so what I try to do in the article is to go through three or four different arguments that have been made over the centuries to explain why Prisbal wasn't uh, signed, and then to pick up on some themes that have been suggested by some thinkers, but to really elaborate on it, to make my own proposal uh, of what might be the most plausible explanation for why it is that Jews didn't sign a Prisbal. So re readers, readers of the essay, which is available on the tradition website, traditiononline.org, uh, can can read your proposal, but but give us a teaser. Let us know. What do you think explains this historical curiosity? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you can't really attribute it to some historical factor. And instead, what we have is some internal legal debates going on. And um, what we see, and I try to develop in the article, is that there are a number of different factors and positions taken together, which added up for, based on different motivations for people to say there are better alternatives than signing a principle. Now, it wasn't officially done though. There wasn't an official declaration like, hey everyone, we're not doing principle now. We're doing something else. Or we're, not do we're doing principle, but we're not doing it the way we used to do it through a document. And because of that ambiguity, uh, throughout the centuries, people were like, well, we can understand how this can be achieved, but it would have been a lot easier and clearer to understand if someone had actually declared, no, no, Prisbol is out or Prisbol is in, but we're doing a different way. But no one ever did that. And so there's this tremendous amount of accumulation of questions over the centuries, which tries to figure out a solution to explain the public practice, which, again, it, it screams out to, to the heavens, like, why aren't Jews doing this? Right. One of the uh, one of the things that interested me 
when the article first uh, came across the transom in the here in the tradition uh, world headquarters was um, the attention that you pay towards the end of the essay on um, general Shemitah. Of course, Prusbul is an independent mitzvah, but it's connected to the observance of Shemitah and it occurs once every seven years at the end, at least according to the way that we uh, paskin, at the end of the at the end of the Shemitah. And part of our attention to it is also connected to with revived interest in the general observance of Shemitah, the agricultural, uh, the agricultural observance of letting the land lie fallow or workarounds to enable Jewish uh, agriculture to continue, particularly in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, the controversies around the heter mechira and other things which may or may not be familiar to our listeners, depending upon how closely they follow the, the politics and the history of, of Shemitah. There's no doubt that part of this was tied up with the Jewish return to the land of Israel with the growing sense of Jewish autonomy and control over the land of, of Israel, of uh, Jewish regaining um, the you know part of the pioneering efforts of Jews to regain land here in in Eretz Israel, and then of course with the arrival in 1948 of the state of Israel, actual sovereignty and control over our own affairs in all matters, you know, from land to law. How do these things interact? How does that part of the story affect the observance of the Prusbul and also what Prusbul has become, you know, in the last few cycles of the of the Shemitah. So it's not entirely clear how the two are connected, but I speculate a bit about it. I mean, we do know the following. Over many centuries, Jews in the Chutzlarts of the Diaspora did not sign a Prusbul. One notable exception, though, was in uh, the land of Israel, right, in the 16th century in particular, when Jews get reestablished here, and the surrounding areas. The areas are very influenced by the culture of Eretz Israel. Now, over the last two centuries, you see a greater push, and not only push, but observance of Prusbol, and particularly in the last several decades. The question is why? And one of the things I speculate upon is that there's a growing influence of the practices in Eretz Israel, and a particularly growing interest in Shemitah as a whole, because after many centuries of the Jews not having to think about these questions of the Shemitah year, suddenly they're thankfully returning back to Eretz Israel, and they have to think about Shemitah questions when it comes to tilling the land. That also, I think, is going to start raising questions about other laws relating to Shemitah, including the laws relating to loan remissions, the Shemitah Ksafim. So it could be, and I speculate that this whole um, rethinking of, well, the meaning in contemporary times of Shemitah also impacts this larger question of Prozbol, but it's hard to know. I mean, it's a curious case. You have a law that wasn't observed for many centuries, suddenly starts being observed again by the masses. You and I are fortunate uh, to both make our homes here in, in Israel. Um, I'm often surprised, uh, you know, I, uh, I have a little garden and we grow some edibles out there uh, raspberries and pomegranates and olives and other type things that uh, that people plant in their backyards here in uh, in Israel. And I've always found it very meaningful uh, to take trumot masrot 
to observe the laws of Maser Sheni and Maser Ani, uh, the tithes that are given, uh, you know, or not given, for which we need uh, we need halachic workarounds because of the state of uh, ritual impurity and our inability to go to the Beit Hamikdash, um, to uh, to observe Orla on on our fruit trees when we first uh, planted them the first uh, number of years. And of course, Shemitah. Uh, my wife has a natural green thumb and uh, we have a, really a, a lovely backyard, which she takes all the credit for. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, but we just had guests over and the, you know, the garden now in the, the 11th month of Shemitah looks a little raggedy. Uh, looks like we could use a good, a good, a good haircut. Um, because we've observed the laws and, uh, you know, basically have let it, let it go wild. And I know the day after Rosh Hashanah or maybe the day after Tzom Gedalia, she's going to be out there pruning and trimming and fixing and cleaning. And um, I've always found all of this very, very meaningful. I've also been somewhat surprised that friends who live abroad, those that are not as fortunate as you and I to make our homes here, well, not only can't they observe these laws, but they often seem, you know, very unaware of them. Uh, you know, the average observant Jew, people that are careful to do all of the mitzvot who live abroad would be completely lost if they had to do hafrashat trumotu masrot on a piece of fruit. And, yeah. you know, that's just simply because it's something that they're not, they're not ever uh, tasked with. Um, but I also find it surprising when friends abroad, you know, say, oh, is it Shemitah again? Right. They're just completely unaware of the cycle of the seven years of time uh, to know when Shemitah is. I presume that for many centuries, if that's true now, when we live in a global village, when, you know, the Internet connects us in ways uh, that it didn't even, you know, in our lifetime, uh, that in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, who could imagine that Jews abroad, even observant Jews, people careful about the mitzvah, even knew that any given year was Shemitah, you know, might this be connected to the idea that the ancillary mitzvot also kind of fall off the map? Uh, it could be. I mean, we do know that in the medieval time period, there's even a machloket about which year is the Shemitah year. Right, and independent like a, of that, yeah. Right, right, but well, how does that happen? That happens also because if it doesn't come up that often and the laws right. aren't relevant, right. so it sort of indicate that Hmm, you know, maybe it's not on the, the radar. I mean, halacha works well because one of the main reasons why halacha works well is because it comes up in a certain regularity. Mm -hmm. But here's a cycle where it's only every seven years. And if the major laws that relate to it are only happening, you know, would only apply in Eretz Israel, but not outside of it. Sure, I think that could that could impact things. Um, I, I actually also, you know, I find, find that for people like ourselves who made Aliyah to Israel, learning the laws of, you know, so the agricultural laws here, growing a garden, and Shemitah are the most confusing, most difficult things. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, our lemon tree this yet. year did not produce anything, uh, ironically, just for Shemitah year. So I didn't get a chance to have Dushat Shemit from my, from my trees. But... Um, but it is it is is definitely a possibility of how this impacted the history of the laws. Right, right. Um, one of the uh, one of the uh, chapters, the, the essay emanates uh, from one of the chapters in your 
doctoral dissertation, which was completed just a couple of years ago at Bar Ilan University. Now, the topic of the, of the larger dissertation had to do with repealing rabbinic laws. You know, what some people might, uh, might uh, either cynically uh, or otherwise say, well, you know, how halacha kind of changes at, uh, at will. So first of all, tell us a little bit about what the larger work was on, what the doctorate was on, uh, that this fit in as a piece of it, and, and how you came to this topic, uh, how you came to become interested in this and dedicate so many years to working on it as a doctorate. Yeah, it was a lot of years. Um, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the history of halakha, and, you know, we live by this, and we find this very meaningful, and it's important, at least for me, to understand, well, you know, how does this whole system operate, and how is it developed? And so when I was choosing a doctorate topic, uh, I was particularly interested in the fact that the Chazal gave us rules for how laws should be repealed or changed. And there's a Mishnah and Ediot, and there are other Sugyot as well. And I decided, okay, I'm going to explore this particular Mishnah and Ediot that regulates how laws can be changed and how it was understood in, by Chazal in, in the later centuries. And uh, it comes up four times only in the Gemara about potential repeals of law. And despite the fact these rules exist, it doesn't actually happen. And the four times, the three of the times the law changes, but they have other explanations for how. And the fourth time, which relates to Prusbol, they say that Shmuel wanted to nullify Hillel's uh, um, uh, decree, but couldn't do so. And so that's how I got into the topic of Prusbo because it was an example of someone who had a trouble with how this law had developed, namely Shmuel. He doesn't have the power to change it, uh, but nonetheless, the law changes. And so that's why Prusbo is a fascinating case example for me of this larger interest of, well, how does an halacha change? How is it supposed to be able to change? And how is it changed or not changed in practice? And remind us of what are the other test cases that you address? So interestingly enough, a second case is relates to uh, also a Shemitah law known as Tosefet Shvi, mm -hmm. uh, which is the period before or after the Shemitah year in which we also, the rabbis extended the Shemitah year prohibitions. Uh, and that Takana has actually been nullified. And the Gemara right, acknowledges that. And I have a different article coming out about that soon as well, about the Sevishvi. And the other two cases, one's much less known. It has to do with which days we can read Megillat Esther. Once upon a time, we could read it the 11th, 12th, or 13th of Adar. We That's the anymore. first Mishnah and Megillah, as many listeners will remember. That's right, correct. And there's a sort of interesting history there. And probably the most important sugya of relating to this topic is the nullification of the law that relates to oil. And oils produced by Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And once upon a time, there's a provision about this. It gets nullified, and the Gemara has a very long discussion about how that happened and how that law gets nullified, which relates also to Gentile bread. It relates to also to the custom of men going to the mikvah during a Sayyidina and relating to another law. And these are the primary examples that I focus on in the doctrine. So here, I mean, we've put our finger on a, on a sensitive nerve. And let's not dance about it. Much of the strength of religious commitment, much of the strength of our religious community, uh, the remarkable flourishing of religious commitment uh, in our day is built around this 
what I'll call, and I mean it in no way cynically, the illusion that things are as they always were. The stability, the integrity, the, the ongoing unbroken chain of, of halacha. I call this an illusion because uh, most people understand that it's a little more complicated than that. But the idea that what we do is the way, what, how we perform, how we observe the halakha is the way that it always has been, has a lot of strength. People find, people find significance in that. People, I think, find it meaningful that they view themselves as part of that unbroken chain, that unbroken link, that unchanged tradition. While we also know one need not be a, a, a university trained historian, even the, the Yehudi Pashut, the simple Jew, understands that it's not exactly so. And these examples, the case of Prusbal, which you, which you bring in your traditional article and the other ones that you've uh, worked on in your academic uh, life, uh, show us that it's not exactly the case. Um, so explain for us uh, how that is, how tradition changes, how, how, how the halacha adopts and adapts while still maintaining this sense of unchanged continuity. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's really critical is this sense of continuity, which I actually think is genuine and is really based uh, in reality. There is a tremendous amount of continuity. Uh, but what you also see is that Chazal wanted to maintain continuity while still preserving the options for evolution and for things to change a bit and to adapt as necessary. Um, and one of the things I try to highlight in my doctorate is that it's very rare, if ever, where you see something, a law that gets outright repealed. Outright repeals are something which causes a lot of instability, instability in the law. We see this in most recent Supreme Court cases in the United States. Right? It's very rare, but when it happens, repeals, outright repeals, really shake a culture. Right. And so one of the things I think that the rabbinic kalach of systems has set up or has developed in a way in which there's changes that happen, but it's never a direct repeal. And the case of Prozbo is so fascinating because of the fact that there wasn't a direct repeal, even though some of the sages didn't like this takana. And so the law continues to develop, but that happens in a number of other cases as well. And I, I think it's you know important for us to learn about that because we can see and actually appreciate the beauty of the continuity while also appreciating the ability to have some form of changes along the way. Mm -hmm. Tachlis, uh, uh, we recommend that everybody uh, prepare a prusbal, which is a very simple form uh, to, to, to fill out and to, to execute. And in most synagogues around the world in the coming weeks, uh, there'll be opportunities to do this. And as I understand it now, there's even some... Uh, some options to do it to do it online and uh, how you should best do it, dear listener. We recommend you speak to your own rabbinic and halachic authorities uh, for guidance on how to do that. But we do, of course, encourage everybody both to learn more about you know the opportunity to to fulfill this uh, rabbinic edict in the in the coming weeks, this once in seven year opportunity to engage with uh, halachic practice, but also to to study about it, to learn about it, to learn about it and about shemitah and all of these other these other topics, and of course, to read 
Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody's uh, recent tradition essay, The Curious Case of Prusbul's Disappearance and Resurgence, which is available free, open access on traditiononline.org. Before we let you go, you're also involved in another important halachic initiative, um, Shlomo, uh, which is also, if not, uh, if not dealing with uh, uh, revising halacha, but kind of debunking some really unfortunate um, urban legends about halacha and, and to advance a very important life-saving uh, uh, initiative as your new role as the executive director of the Halachic Organ Donors Society. So very quickly, tell us about that organization that you've now stepped into lead and, and its work and what people can do to, to get involved. And thank you. Um, yes, I mean, organ donation is a very important uh, topic and it's a life-saving matter. Um, in the Jewish community, we've become champions in many ways, tr tremendously of live organ donation for kidney donation. Uh, the issue of posthumous organ donation, particularly after brain death, remains a sensitive topic. And you know, we wanna give continued education and guidance to people about uh, these issues uh, relating to brain death and organ donation, the sensitivities around it. But part of what we've also seen is that organ donation, particularly posthumous organ donation, is just one issue of many that relates to end of life care and decision makings that are so important. And as opposed to organ donation, which doesn't come up that often, which is why it becomes so important, mm -hmm. but the other types of end of life decision making issues are very common and come up every day. And so part of what we're trying to do in our organization is to rebrand and expand uh, to be able to offer guidance and services to a range of issues which touch at the heart of the intersection of Jewish values and key Jewish values like Dushat HaChayim, but also relate to issues of modernity and technology and innovation and how we deal with these types of challenges and, and opportunities. And that's where we're sort of headed towards in the organization. And I think the common thread, both relating to my doctorate and this work, is that halacha um, is able to and has to encounter new realities and address those new realities. And I think that's what happened in the case of Prozbal. I think it's what happened in the cases of a lot of laws that changed. And that certainly has happened, is going to continue to happen when it comes to these end-of-life medical decisions. The innovations are tremendous. They keep on um, developing, which is uh, miraculous, but they raise all sorts of interesting ethical and halakhic issues, and we have to be ready to address those. Fascinating. So how can people learn more about the work of the Halakhic Organ Donor Society? So you certainly can visit our website, hodes.org, and in the coming months, you also see a new website and a new name that will be redirecting from that we, we look website forward, as well. We look forward to that. And we uh, commend to the attention of our listeners the curious case of Prusbal's disappearance and resurgence at traditiononline.org, where you can read that and so many uh, other articles uh, and other content which we publish on a regular on a regular basis. And uh, we encourage everyone to go out and sign a, a Prusbal in advance of Rosh Hashanah. And I guess together, uh, Shlomo and I wish you a Shana Tova Ktiva Mechatima Tova. Amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sachs, for having me. Thank you, Rabbi Brody.